1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Women's Online Wellness Podcast. It's Dr. Ron Eaker, your host, and today I'm going to be incredibly self-serving. The name of this podcast is Three Ways to Make Your Gynecologist Cry. In general, gynecologists are very sensitive souls. Now, here I'm being a little misogynistic in making the assumption that in referring to gynecologists as a whole, I'm thinking from the perspective of a male. I realize all too well that over 50% of practicing gynecologists are of the female species. But because I'm blessed with the XY chromosome pattern, I feel compelled to provide that perspective. The quickest way to make your GYN sob uncontrollably is to arrive at your appointment with a satchel full of papers printed out from the internet. WebMD has become one of the most visited sites on the information stupor highway, and they have the ad revenue to prove it. Type in any symptom and you'll get a differential diagnosis that is guaranteed to scare the pants off of you. A simple fever and a rash will get you everything from berry berry to scarlet fever. And I can safely say that I've not seen a case of Scarlet Fever since, oh, I don't know, maybe the Middle Ages? Dr. Google is a great example of why I feel I have job security. I just don't think women are gonna be happy having a robot put in a speculum and do a pap smear. I understand very few are happy when I do it, but at least they know I won't crash in the middle of the exam and have to have the device surgically removed from their hoo-hoo. Number two. Please don't tell us that you hate the exam. Believe me, we know you do. We hear it about 20 times a day. In fact, if you liked it, that would open up a whole new set of problems. There's nothing good about someone jamming metal salad tongs up their nether region and then using a Brillo pad to get some cells. I promise if there was any other way to get this information, we would embrace it with open arms. We understand that it is amazingly embarrassing for many women, others not so much, but continually reminding us that you would rather have your fingernails pulled out with a rusty pair of pliers than have a pap, and it really puts a damper on our day. And after all, it's all about us, isn't it? Some GYNs have tried to make the experience more pleasant by having soft music playing in the background, soothing pictures on the walls, and pleasant aromas wafting through the room. Quite honestly, I I really think folks would just rather have a shot of Jack Daniels than a Xanax. Third reason. Please, don't call us at midnight to tell us about your chronic constipation. We will cry. This is especially egregious when the problem is not a new one. I had a lady call once in the wee hours of the morning, about 3 a.m. to be exact, about her bladder problems. When I asked and I was in a sleep-interrupted stupor. How long has this been a problem? She honestly and quickly said, well, about six months. I couldn't imagine what possessed her to call at 3 a.m. about something that wasn't acute or serious, but I figured I needed to look at the clock anyway, so why not address a little leakage? For years, there's been this misperception. That patients thought that when we were on call, thank you for we were listening the to the Women's Online the hospital podcast. To join the, the conversation, like access show notes,
0: and discover bonus That's content. That's
1: not the case. Join
0: our private Facebook We're community by sending a request jamies, to Women's Online down Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and, and want to hear more, just head like over to iTunes and subscribe, people. rate, and leave We're a review. Always, for questions about the podcast to or to get more information, email Dr. Eger at reaker but please, at
1: yahoo.com. Thank you for listening,
0: and until next time, choose to be healthy.
1: Now, I realize that I'm having a good wine, W-H-I-N-E, with my cheese, but I hope you can use this guide to make your GYN cry. Because after all, it's all about him. That's all we have today, short and sweet. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, make healthy choices. Hey everybody and welcome to another edition of Women's Wellness Podcast. Dr. Ronnie Eaker here and I'll be your host for the next, what, maybe 10-15 minutes. So stick around, there might be some fun things that you might learn and hopefully begin to apply on a daily basis. Today's topic is 5 Dumb Things That Are Making You Gain Weight. Now I can be pretty confident in calling that dumb things because I have succumbed to those same things myself. So I'm not throwing any stones here. I've actually made these mistakes along the way, so please take that in consideration as we go through. Listen, there's nothing like a good myth to screw things up. For example, growing up I was told that manual labor built character. Needless to say, my dad harped on that every Saturday when the grass needed to be cut. Now I know that's horse poo poo. The only thing that mowing the lawn on Saturday morning built when my friends were out playing baseball was resentment. Then there was this myth that if you work hard, you'll get ahead. While that might hold true for some in certain situations, I remember this guy from grade school, Dean Grabowski. He was an ignoramus and he was my childhood neighbor, but he got an Estes rocket launcher kit for Christmas and he never worked a hard day in his life. I got socks. And that was after cutting fields and fields of grass. So he got a cool rocket. I got socks. Really, I think it was only because his dad was a proctologist and they had the nicest house in the neighborhood. But anyway, there are many myths regarding food and nutrition that do more harm than good. In fact, they can be downright lard collectors. So let's take a stroll through five misunderstandings that can put on the pounds if not disavowed. Number one. A calorie is a calorie is a calorie. Now I have to tell you, even being a bastion of medical knowledge, I used to believe this myth myself. It turns out that a calorie of protein is handled very differently by the body than, say, a calorie of carbohydrate or fat. What you eat is just as important as how much you eat. In fact, many times what you eat is even more important than how much you eat. Now that's not to say the calories don't matter. They absolutely do. You can eat 5,000 calories of proteins and still be overweight and terminally constipated, by the way. So don't misunderstand. Just remember that in your body, food is metabolized very differently in the lab. Many of you who have gotten some education on nutrition are aware of the studies illustrating that fat had nine calories per gram when it was burned, protein four and carbohydrates four. Well that's correct when you're doing it in a calorimeter on a laboratory study, but that's not how it happens in the body. Even the cost of metabolizing certain foods is different. So a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie. They're not all the same. And it really behooves you to learn the difference in how it's metabolized and the effect that it has on your body. In simple terms, increase your protein, decrease your, your saturated and your trans fats, and decrease your carbohydrates. Number two, eating eggs increases your bad cholesterol. Now I think this was propagated by those radical chicken lovers who equate eating eggs with ingesting poison. The reality is that eggs contain excellent protein and vitamins that can be a valuable component of a healthy diet. Of course if you have eggs for every meal you're not only be thought of as being really weird but you might have some health issues anyway. So everything in moderation. The bottom line is very little what we consume food-wise is directly correlated to blood cholesterol levels. So have that egg over easy and relax. That's one of the biggest myths that have been propagated ever since the 1950s is that our dietary intake of cholesterol directly correlated with our blood level of cholesterol. We know now that's just not the case. Again, the way the body metabolizes Foods that contain cholesterol actually oftentimes breaks that cholesterol into smaller fats called fatty acids and they get reused in a completely different fashion. So there's not a very close correlation between dietary cholesterol and blood level cholesterol. The next myth, red meat is the devil's dessert. Okay, that might be a little melodramatic, but many people feel that red meat is akin to a slow suicide. While some fatty meats do have their nutritional challenges, lean red meats contain protein, iron, zinc, B vitamins, and amino acids that are all essential for a healthy diet. And if you're trying to lose weight, remember that six ounces of beef will provide as much protein as three and a half cups of beans and a lot less calories. Again, I go back to this same mantra everything in moderation. There is no super bad food, well, maybe except Twinkies, and there's not a super food. We've been given this tremendous cornucopia of foods to choose from for a reason, because a balanced diet is by far the healthiest diet. You'll hear me say this all the time, that the best diet is one that's low in sugar, low in fat, high in fiber, and balanced. If you follow those simple rules themselves, you really can improve your health and your longevity. The next one, honey is a healthy sugar. Unlike a calorie, sugar is sugar. Now sugar is one of those broad terms that covers an umbrella of a variety of different substances ranging from glucose to fructose. Sucrose, table sugar is a combination of glucose and fructose. And then you see uh, galactose, a lot of these what we call simple sugars or monosaccharides combine to form disaccharides. And these form long chains called starches. Well the bottom line is they all are broken down into the body into its basic components which is oftentimes glucose. And that's what we really refer to when we talk about sugars. Yeah some sugars when they're paired with a lot of fiber are easier on the body's blood sugar level. For example, a potato, which is a starch, a carbohydrate, it's broken down into its components of glucose very rapidly because there's not a whole lot of fiber in the potato itself. So it shoots up the blood sugar fairly rapidly. You get a rapid rise in insulin levels. That rapid rise in insulin levels in turn turns off the fat burning enzymes and turns on the fat storage enzymes. So anytime you have a spike in your sugar, whether it's from a high glycemic starch like a potato or just eating a ding-dong or ho-ho or Twinkie, it's going to work against you from the standpoint of weight management. And honey, that's just another term for sugar. And then finally, and this one made me the most sad red wine is healthy before bed yes that's a myth that's not a statement of truth now I cried when I read about this myth then I realized it was not so much a slam on red wine as it was on the timing studies indicate that a glass of red wine at dinner may provide antioxidants and some cardiovascular benefit But having one before bed to relax and to help you with sleep will actually oftentimes work just the opposite. As your body metabolizes alcohol, sleep can become fragmented, leading to wake up multiple times throughout the night, which can lead to everything from weight gain to brain fog to fatigue. So the bottom line with these myths is become an educated consumer. You know, we are so lambasted on a daily basis with information oftentimes from questionable sources so you have to be thank a, you for listening to the women's critical online Wellness consumer, Wellness just like you would to
0: join the conversation spend a lot of time notes, shopping and for a bonus
1: 20-inch join our private facebook community by sending a request ability. to
0: women's so Online Wellness. you have
1: to be a critical if you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more
0: just head so over to itunes and subscribe rate and leave a review for questions about the podcast or to get more information Email doctor ether at K E R at, you'll at be Yahoo dot com.
1: And Thank you for, for
0: listening Thanks and until for listening. next time. Choose to be healthy. And until
1: next time, make healthy choices. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Women's Wellness Podcast. I'm Dr. Ron Eker, your host, and today we're going to trip the light fantastic talking about femtech. And if that doesn't ring a bell, I'll explain in just a minute. Now, I'm always on the lookout for interesting and new topics surrounding women's health. I'm always open to learn things, but when I saw the headline, The Vagina, out of the shadows and into the light." I had to stop and read. Now talk about clickbait. I could not let that one pass by. Obviously, being a gynecologist, certain words piqued my interest, like vagina, nipples, discharge, and mutual funds. So I was intrigued by finding out what the vagina had been in the shadows from, and more importantly, whose lights they were now under. It turns out this article was talking about and here I'm doing air quotes, femtech, F-E-M-T-E-C-H, a term used to describe women's health-related technology. Oh, the world we live in today. Of course, my first thought was about air quotes mantech, and of course, that's the science of technology designed to get men to put the toilet seat down, but that's for another day. It turns out that 2018 was shaping up to be vagina-centric in the gadget world for promoting women's health. Who would have thunk it? In particular, this article touted the newest aid to pelvic floor disorders. Now, For the uninitiated, pelvic floor disorders are a broad umbrella category of problems deriving from weakness in the muscle and tissues of the vagina and the surrounding territory that results in pressure feelings, urinary incontinence, and prolapse. Many people will know the terms cystocele, rectocele, enterocele Basically those are all small internal hernias or weaknesses in the vaginal tissues, largely brought on by childbirth, trauma, age, and in most instances they're pretty innocuous. Now occasionally they can cause problems with pressure and discomfort, occasionally in, interfering with sexual intercourse, and of course probably the most common is the urinary incontinence. And that's what this particular article was referring to when it was talking about pelvic floor disorders. Now this is just not an insignificant issue, especially for women in the menopause, when some of these conditions can worsen. As the vaginal tissues age, they do get a bit thinner in general. And when that happens, the support mechanisms that kind of holds everything into place become a bit weaker. So it actually can become quite more of an issue for menopausal women. Well, enter Tanya Bowler, the co-developer of the Evie Kegel Trainer. This diaphragm looking device teaches women to properly perform the venerable Kegel exercises. Now surely you all remember this little exercise, you know, squeeze and relax, squeeze and relax, then repeat. For the folks who aren't really sure what I'm talking about, whenever you're sitting on the toilet and you're urinating, you consciously stop urinating and the muscles that you contract are the muscles that are utilized in the Kegel exercises. These are basically designed to strengthen the muscles that the bladder sits on. If those muscles are more taut, more strong, then whenever you cough or sneeze or apply pressure to those tissues, there's better support and there's less likelihood of urinary loss. Well, the innovation in this diaphragm looking device that the EV Kegel trainer brings is that it has two sensors inside. An accelerometer to show women if they're exercising correctly and a sensor to provide feedback on the mind-body connection. Yep, you guessed it. A smart vagina. The reality is that mommy's little friend actually can help make sure you're doing these exercises correctly, because that's really the key to success. Kegels work if you A, are doing them right, and B, if you're persistent and consistent in doing them. And certainly, considering the only alternative is oftentimes surgery, it's a nice conservative approach. And if there's anything that can be done that will help enhance the function and performance of these exercises, Well, frankly, I'm all for it, even though it is kind of weird. Now, there have been many items in the past that have been available to help train folks to do the Kegels appropriately. Most of these were devices that had to be calibrated and used in the physician office. And this is the first that I'm aware of that is really designed for home use and easy setup. And apparently, it's gaining traction. Those crazy Brits, where it was designed, have now made it free of charge for any woman who gets their primary care to order it for them. Another reason why socialized medicine is a dangerous concept. The Evie has even made it to Hollywood, and quite honestly, I'm not very surprised there, as it showed up in the goodie bags at the Oscars. Imagine Kate Thank you for listening no to the Women's
0: Online Wellness Podcast. To join the conversation, access show notes, aside, and discover bonus
1: content, join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. Pelic, Florida, if you
0: enjoyed today's episode and, and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions progress. about the podcast or to get I more information, email Dr. at reaker at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Thanks for listening, and
1: as always, make healthy choices. Hey everybody, Dr. Ron Eker, and welcome to another edition of Women's Online Wellness Podcast. I'm recording this today in my office as opposed to my home, so if you hear any ambient sounds that may be a bit distracting, my apologies, but it just adds some realism to the setting. Today's topic, why Ozzie and Harriet never got to clap. Sexually transmitted diseases have been around since the Earth was cooling. In fact, I bet there were some brontosauruses who had gonorrhea. Ancient texts from the Upanishads to the Old Testament tout the joy of sores on your wee-wee or your hoo-hoo. And virtually every culture on Earth has attached some mystical meaning to the passing of bugs between lovers. The vast majority of civilizations have stigmatized the infections largely because they're hideous society-destroying demons. Up until relatively recently, there was no effective treatment for many of the scourges, and millions have succumbed to their devastating effects. Luckily, today, we live in a time when your wiener won't fall off if it contracts syphilis, like it used to in the past, and herpes is about the only gift that just keeps on giving. HPV and chlamydia have replaced gonorrhea and syphilis as the two twin towers of destruction. But one thing remains the same. The most common risk factor for any STD is multiple sexual partners. Inner Ozzie and Harriet. If you're younger than some of my old jockey shorts, you may not know who this adorable couple was. I'm not talking about the drugged-out rock star married to Sharon who can barely put a coherent sentence together, i.e. Ozzy Osborne but the main characters of a famous sitcom that ran from 1952 to 1966. You might catch them still on TV Land. They reflected the surface mood of the pre-Vietnam culture, heaped with mom, apple pie, virtue, and even wearing pearls while cooking dinner. Due to the TV norms of the time, not only did they sleep in separate beds, just like Lucy and Desi did, but they also slept only with each other. Of course, that was only superficially implied, even at that. I suspect most of the U.S. thought David and Ricky, their two wholesome boys, were probably immaculately conceived. While everyone knows that Ozzie and Harriet were, at best, fictional representations of the ideal family, the reality was that most families couldn't live up to the bars set by this conclave of conformity. Yet many felt that even though perfect harmony and marital monogamy were superlative ideals, they were still worth striving for. Multiple sexual partners, either in or out of marriage, was actually discouraged. And instead of being a stud monkey, you were a cad if you slept around. It's no accident that with the change in mores and the hatching of the free love movement, The free STD movement skyrocketed. Thankfully, researchers simultaneously found successful treatments, or we may have suffered another plague of, quote-unquote, the French disease. If you don't know what that is, simply Google it. So what can we conclude from this rant? That getting an STD, like pregnancy, is only 100% preventable by abstention. Now the next best method is limiting sexual partners and condom use regardless whether you're using other birth control methods. I tell folks all the time, especially my younger patients, that using the birth control pill isn't a very effective tool for helping prevent pregnancy, but it will do nothing for preventing sexually transmitted diseases. This actually comes as a surprise to a lot of my younger patients. So I strongly suggest that, especially if you're not in a monogamous relationship, that you still utilize condoms as the best tool for preventing the spread of STDs, although I might caution, it's not perfect, not by a long shot. Maybe instead of having so much sex, folks should just binge watch Ozzie and Harriet on Netflix that's all we have today i appreciate you taking the time to listen to this and hopefully if it's something that you enjoy you'll share it with others or give us a positive rating thanks again for listening and like always make healthy choices
0: thank you for listening to the women's online wellness podcast to join the conversation access show notes and discover bonus content Join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions about the podcast or to get more information, email Dr. Eker at reaker at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, choose to be healthy.
1: Hey everybody, Dr. Ron Eaker here, and welcome to another edition of Women's Online Wellness Podcast. Today I'm once again recording this in my office, so if you hear any background noises that sound like baby just crying or overhead pages, just ignore them. It adds to the ambiance. Now, if you're a writer, like sometimes I pretend to be, especially a writer who enjoys the absurd, every now and then the muses send you a gift. While scanning the news of the day, I was recently given such a present. The headline said, quote, Placenta, a superfood or a dietary fad? End quote. There's so many things wrong with this on so many levels, it's hard to even know where to begin. Have any of you guys ever seen a placenta? These are not appetizing creatures. Imagine a bloody mass of grapes, jello, and cottage cheese, and you get a pretty good idea of what we're dealing with. I mean, I've had some husbands hit the ground not after seeing the baby born, but after seeing the placenta born. To even mention lunch in the same paragraph as placenta is tantamount to a federal crime. I mean, that's like talking about your grandparents making whoopee. It's a nauseating thought. However... Like line dancing and karaoke, some people get off on doing really weird things, and that includes eating their placentas. Remember, the placenta is a body tissue, much like liver's ugly cousin. I have yet to hear of anybody asking their surgeon to keep their removed spleen so as to make a souffle after the surgery. Would any sane individual want to keep, much less consume, their afterbirth? The answer is no sane person would. The mere fact that a new mom would request their placenta to ride home in the car seat with their new baby is reason to notify Child and Family Services. This kid is doomed from the start. Advocates of placentophagy, and yes, that is a real word, state that most animals in the wild routinely eat their placentas largely to protect the infants from scents that may attract predators. So using this logic, moms should chow down on their afterbirth just in case a crazed nurse is on the prowl looking for a baby to steal. Just because an armadillo makes a placenta parfait doesn't give credence to Sally putting her stuff in a blender and mixing it with a pinch of salt. Listen, cats lick themselves into furball fits, Yet I don't see any new moms grooming themselves with their tongues after pushing for four hours. One simply has to look at the proponents of placenta burgers to gain an understanding of the legitimacy of this trend. Kim Kardashian, that mental Mensa giant, supposedly ate her placenta, apparently to pass the time while she was trying to figure out who was the father of the baby. January Jones... Another actress I must say I've never heard of, also advocated for making placental capsules and consuming them in the postpartum period. Quite honestly, this is like getting advice on how to go to Mars from Britney Spears. These are the same folks who advocate tobacco smoke enemas and recycling urine. Enough said. Now, I'm very much a libertarian when it comes to health. I'm a big believer in personal responsibility and making healthy lifestyle decisions. But when I see someone doing something so absurd as making a placenta burger, I just gotta speak out. There are some risks here. Infection, contamination, terminal idiocy. So it's simply not a benign practice. I must say I'm really glad I'm no longer delivering babies as I'm not really sure how I would react to a placenta request since I'm just now old and crotchety and really don't care what I say, even if it's not politically correct. Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks again for listening to Women's Online Wellness Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this, please share it and leave us a positive review. So until next time, remember, make healthy choices.
0: Thank you for listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast. To join the conversation, access show notes, and discover bonus content, join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions about the podcast or to get more information, email Dr. Eker at reaker at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, choose to be healthy.
1: Hey everybody, Dr. Ron Eaker here, and welcome to another edition of Women's Online Wellness Podcast. I'm recording this again in my office, so there may be some ambient sounds in the background, so please disregard those and pay terribly close attention to my words only. Please ignore everything you hear in the background, because quite honestly, I can't afford to record this in some basement soundproof studio in a $10 million broadcasting complex. Today's episode is about why I don't really like to fly. And if you don't really like to fly, maybe you'll understand and appreciate some of these comments. Now for a long while, I really didn't mind flying at all. But then I took a small plane from Los Angeles to Palm Springs. And if any of you have ever taken that flight, it's a very short flight but it's over this mountain range down into this valley. There's never been a more jam-packed hour of fervent prayer than that trip over the mountains for me. I think I promised God my firstborn child, a month's worth of Home Depot coupons, the first pick in the upcoming NBA draft, and free access to my American Express card, as if he needed any of that. For a number of years after that, I had to be just a little tipsy, uh, not not drunk, but just a little tipsy, certainly very relaxed to get on the steel death trap that we commonly call Delta. I'm much better now and require only a good book and a paid-up life insurance policy to fly. Just when I thought the friendly skies were my pal, an article was published by Bloomberg News that implies that airlines actually don't want me aboard. It seems that because I'm a doctor, airlines would rather that I take the bus. Let me expand on that. It seems back then, 2016, there was an incident on an international flight that made doctors persona non gratis. A passenger developed an acute bout of what turned out to be pancreatitis mid-route and the sweet, kind doctor on board recommended diverting the flight to allow the patient to receive very timely treatment. The pilot overruled the decision and flew on to the destination while the patient got sicker. Seven hours later, the plane landed, and the unfortunate patient ended up spending three months in the hospital recovering. While I don't know all the details, it sounds like a mismanaged situation from the start. Here's what I find interesting. Of course a lawsuit was filed and as part of discovery some facts came to light that I and probably you were not aware of with how airlines handle in-flight emergencies. Airlines would rather doctors on their flights stay mom if a patient gets sick and here's why. Airlines employ telemedicine services that give recommendations about flight diversions and landings when it comes to sick passengers. They report that flight attendants are trained to gather data like blood pressure, state of consciousness, physical symptoms, and communicate with docs hired by the airlines by phone to make a decision. All too often, a doc on a flight decides differently about the acuteness of a situation than the telemedicine doc. In fact, one company executive for the largest telemedicine service employed by the airlines said, quote, doctors, they tend to recommend diversions more than we do, speaking about doctors on the flights, because, of course, they don't want to assume the long-term responsibility, end quote. This holds out when you look at the statistics as only 1.6% of flights in which Medair, the largest service providing telemedicine to the airlines, is called on to render a decision. Only 1.6% of flights are diverted. Personally, I'm petrified to hear the announcement over the speaker, Is there a doctor on board? Because I know, unless it has to do with someone's water breaking, I'm pretty much dead weight. Maybe that's a bad choice of words here, but I am bound by my oath as a physician to do no harm. So there is this balance between helping someone in an emergency and recognizing the limits of my training. I know basic first aid, I know CPR, and I can recognize common emergencies. But I'm afraid if I had to suture some guy's head, it would end up looking like an episiotomy. All in all, as much as I've flown, I've been pretty lucky in not having to embarrass myself by explaining to the old guy having kidney stone pain that I only do hysterectomies. I think the key for me is simply an eye mask and earphones. That's all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and as always, if you liked what you heard, spread the word, pass it on, send a link, and leave us a positive review. So until next time, remember... Make healthy choices.
0: Thank you for listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast. To join the conversation, access show notes, and discover bonus content, join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions about the podcast or to get more information, Email Dr. Eker at R-E-A-K-E-R at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, choose to be healthy.